Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. What do you pray for? Oh, peace in my family. Peace in my family. Um, that life goes fine. Stuff like that. How about you, ma'am? What, what do you pray for? I, I don't. Do I pray? No. No? Nope. I'm not going to answer a question. Not at all. I don't pray. I don't pray. Why don't you pray? I don't have anything to pray for. I don't pray. Uh, I don't pray that much. When you do pray, what do you pray for? I really don't pray that much. So, like, not at all? Not at all. That's fine. other ways of getting in touch with a higher power than through prayer. All right, like what? Just deep thinking, wishfulness, hopes. Uh-huh. What do you wish for? Um, deep connection, love, and eternal happiness. What's the difference between a wish and a prayer? A prayer, in my opinion, means trying to get an outcome from another being. Mm-hmm. And a wish seems based on what you yourself want and hope to achieve for yourself. So does creation start in you? I have no idea. What do I pray for? Uh, success. I pray for um, uh, peace and happiness, love. Snow, rain, uh, peace, sanity, just a lot of different things. World peace. What, what did you mean by you don't know until you put it out there? Is that what you said? Yeah, right. Well, let's see what's up. That's not good music, but I do pray for good music. Take care. All right. Why do you pray? Force of habit. You know, <laughs> I grew up that way. Makes me feel better, and who knows? I mean, if there is a God, hopefully it'll all work out. What do I pray for? Yes. To live on. Make sure the next day is a better day to live. Why do you pray? Why do I pray? Hope. Very <laughs> early in the morning, mm-hmm. you pray around 1 o'clock and there's a 4 o'clock prayer, uh-huh. and there's a 7 o'clock and there's like an 8 o'clock prayer. Uh-huh. Do your do your employers let you off? For- no, they don't. They, I mean, not that they, let, they don't let me. I, when I go home, I do all the five prayers at the same time. What do you pray for? A lot of things. Such as? Just generally everything that... You know, you know, may need a prayer. Like, uh, what was the last thing that you prayed for? The last thing I prayed for, that the idiots that drive cars around Palo Alto would learn what the traffic signals stand for. How's the prayer going so far? Pretty bad. Why do you believe prayer works? I don't, like, believe it works. But this is one of those like, things you, like, have to believe in. It's just, yeah. it, it, you almost feel bad if you don't believe in it, because even though, even though there's no proof that it's actually true, it's like, you have to believe in it. Okay. I think it's, like, 
something that like gives people like hope. You know what I mean? Like it's like something there for people to like say, oh, you know, like maybe God will like help. You know what I mean? It's just like it makes them like. And it's like if you believe, better. then maybe it'll it'll yeah. come true, even if it's not. There's actually not someone making it happen. It's like. If you, Do you? Do yeah. you what? Believe. Do you believe that it'll, it might come true? Yeah. Yeah. What do you pray for? Uh, world peace. Peace in the Middle East, especially. And that's about it right now. That's about it? That's about Everything it. Everything else is beautiful? Good enough. Why pray? Why not? <laughs> uh, well, it, why not would be if you think it would be futile or if it's too nothing, then praying is a waste of time. I wouldn't say it's a waste of time. I think if you believe in God, you can pray. You know, Do you believe in God then? Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Sure. Prayer. Do you pray? <laughs> As you just heard from many people on the street, the matter of whether to pray or not really depends on the answer to the simple question, is anybody listening? For if no one is listening, there is no God, then prayer is futile, right? Wishful thinking. But prayer is assumed for Christians, those who believe in the God of the Bible or entrusted their lives to Jesus, it's assumed that prayer is, is a given. Of course Christians pray. However, more and more, the utility or the futility of prayer is actually being debated in Christian circles. That is, it's one thing to believe in God and believe that he actually hears our prayers. But to believe that our prayers actually change God or, or move him in such a way that he's compelled to intervene in our daily lives in a real-time way? Well, that's, that's a whole other question entirely. Does prayer change God? That seems like it requires a whole other level of faith to really believe. I'd like to begin tonight by first giving credit to renowned Christian author Philip Yancey. As many of you know, Yancey's writing has profoundly influenced my own spiritual journey with masterpieces like um, What's So Amazing About Grace, just kind of breathing fresh life into core biblical truths that had grown dusty for me through overfamiliarity. And recently I came upon a compelling article authored by Yancey in Books and Culture. It's a Christian review, which I'd like to actually share with you. So tonight I, I humbly serve as the messenger. The title of Yancey's work frames a question that's probing and relevant for any Christ follower who longs for God's personal intervention in day-to-day events of our lives. Does prayer change God? Scientific study. Quick, show of hands. How many of you prayed at least once this week? Right hand. Oh, look, wow. Praying people. No pagans here. (laughs) You spoke directly to God. You asked him to intervene in your life, your family, maybe on behalf of someone else, our church or the world. That's okay. Good. Majority of people. Now, second show of hands. How many of you believe in your heart of hearts that the words you uttered actually changed or influenced God? 
actually impacted him in such a way that it caused him to intervene, break into the course of human history, however big or small, show of hands. Okay, so for those of you listening over the internet, (laughs) that's about a third of the amount of people who raised their hands and said they actually prayed. I want to begin by bookending our conversation with two verses from the Old Testament scriptures. On the one hand, the prophet Malachi records the words of the Lord in in chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. That is, I am immutable, unmovable, steadfast, always the same. Of course, on the other hand, if you look at the words of the prophet Hosea, God confesses, he says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. How how do you reconcile those two? I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3, sex. My heart is changed within me. Hosea 11, 8. Those two statements recorded in the Bible as the words of God, they kind of frame this major theological dispute. Now, you could marshal all sorts of other verses that clearly present a changeless God and balance that with an even bigger list of passages that show that God's changing his mind in Scripture. But truth be known, us, we kind of want some of both, don't we? If it was ours for the picking, on the one hand, we want a trustworthy, dependable deity who we can count on. And yet, on the other hand, our deep longing for a God who allows himself to be affected by us. And what we conclude about this issue actually may well determine how we view the utility or the futility of prayer. Think of the prayers you prayed this week. Were they petitions that so moved the heart of God himself that he moved and responded dynamically on your behalf? Or were they just actually token expressions of our longings that, although God might appreciate them, can hardly be thought to move the creator of the universe to action? I mean, he is sovereign. He's omniscient, after all, isn't he? His character immutable, unchanging. In the balance between those two views of God and his character lie the prayers breathed by many of us this week. The prayers of a college graduate looking to land her first job. Or an out-of-work businessman searching for a position that will finally let him pay the bills for his family. Among the crowd this size, the prayers of a a grief-stricken wife that God would save her floundering marriage. Or from a man who's praying actually that he would find the spouse who might complete him. The prayers of a a husband praying for healing and relief of his cancer-addled wife. The prayers of a senior pastor asking for guidance as he leads his church in a new direction. All sorts of prayers went up among our community this week. Prayers for world peace uttered by an elderly woman on her knees. Or maybe just the desperate prayers of the mom of a newborn just praying that her colicky baby would finally sleep through the night. Is God responsive to such requests? Does it affect him? Does it change him? If you go back into early Christendom to one of the earliest church fathers, Origen, he was the first Christian writer known to mull over the paradox of praying to a God who does not change. Origen wrote, first, if God foreknows what will come to be, and if it must happen, then prayer is in vain. Second, if everything happens according to God's will, and if what he wills is fixed, and not one of the things he wills can be changed, then prayer is also in vain. Origen, one of the fathers of Christianity, came down on the side of a changeless God, concluding that God, from the foundations of the world, could see in advance all that a person would freely choose, including the contents of their prayers. Many philosophers followed along the same track, actually laid down by Aristotle's notion of God as the first unmoved mover. 
Immanuel Kant, maybe you heard of him in college, for example, he called it an absurd and presumptuous delusion to think that one's personal prayer might deflect God from the plan of his wisdom. Have you heard of Calvinism? Maybe we have some Calvinists with us. Calvinism is a school of theological thought that emphasizes the absolute sovereignty of God. It was advanced by Protestant reformer John Calvin in about the 16th century, and it shifted the emphasis of prayer from its effect to God, on God to its effect actually on, on, the, on the prayer. As Matthew Henry put it, he said, It is true, nothing we can say can have in, any influence upon him or move him to show us mercy, but it may have an influence upon ourselves and help to put us into a frame fit to receive Murphy. <laughs> Murphy. <laughs> I just looked over and saw Glenn, sorry. In my subconscious. Get behind me, Glenn Murphy. <laughs> a frame fit to receive mer- mercy. You hear that all the time, right? I've, even in conversations that I've had with many of you, you say, I don't know if, cha- if prayer really affects God as much as it changes me. You've heard that. Sometimes masking a doubtfulness that God really will do anything. Jonathan Edwards, the devout uh, um, New Englander questioned whether prayer actually had any effect. He wrote, God is sometimes represented in the Bible as if he were moved and persuaded by the prayers of people. Yet it's not to be thought that God is properly moved or, or made willing by prayers. Instead, God bestows mercy on us as though he were prevailed upon by prayer. So it just seems like he's being moved. As discoveries in science provided explanations for phenomena that uh, people had always considered part of providence, modern sons and daughters, actually, of the Enlightenment saw less reason for prayer. The natural world became more predictable, apparently less subject to the whims of God or those who prayed to God. And Thomas Hardy described God actually as the dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idle show. I remember as the English teacher, I was an English teacher of American literature, in a former life, and I recall how modern novelist Kurt Vonnegut mocked the serenity prayer in his satirical book, Slaughterhouse-Five. Those of you who read it, remember, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom always to tell the difference. Among the things, Billy Pilgrim, the main character, could not change were the past, the present, and the future. Well, arguments by philosophers... And cynical novelists alike, however, collide with this portrait of God in the Bible. Of a personal being who actually listens attentively to prayers and responds. Jesus gave flesh to that portrait and the disciples took up praying right where Jesus left off. And if you remember the disciples, the early disciples, they asked God for all sorts of things. From physical healings, liberation from prison, safety on missionary journeys. They expected him to act. The Apostle Paul actually interceded for churches constantly. He didn't hesitate to make personal, specific requests. The world's most famous prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer, the Our Our Father. Jesus gave spontaneously in answer to his disciples' request for teaching on prayer. Introducing it in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus acknowledged that God actually already knows our needs in advance of our prayers. In verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 6, Jesus tells his followers, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so you see, for Jesus, God's sovereignty is actually no deterrent to prayer. It's an encouragement to pray. We don't have to work to gain God's attention. 
through long words or ostentatious displays of religiosity. We don't have to convince God of our sincerity or our needs. We already have the Father's ear, as it were. Abba knows everything about us, and still God listens. We can get right to the point. Just a brief survey of the Bible doesn't hesitate to suggest that our prayers do make a difference to the God uh, and to the world, actually. Consider John 15, 7, which Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Now, I know late-night televangelists have taken that and just run to town with it. In the name of Jesus, I claim this BMW. It is mine. (laughs) Not quite the context. In the Gospel of Mark... Again, Jesus echoes, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The epistle of James records in chapter 5, he writes, and the prayer offered in faith will actually make the sick person well. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then, of course, Peter, who knew the Lord best, writes in his, in his, uh, his own first epistle, for the eyes of the Lord are actually on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, giving God eyes and ears in this anthropomorphism, saying he he is listening, he's intent, he's zeroed in. And finally, James records, you do not have, because you do not ask God, kind of chiding believers for their lethargy and actually speaking and praying directly to God. Now, underscoring these lavish promises, the Bible tells of Elijah and Elisha, right, and the Apostle Peter praying for the resurrection of dead people. Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, Rachel, Elizabeth, all praying against infertility. (laughs) David praying in a den of lions, right? Even as his three friends had prayed in the midst of fire. When God sent the prophet Isaiah, who's arguably the most God-connected person of the Old Testament, and he sends him to King Hezekiah, who is facing his impending death, Hezekiah actually prays for more time on earth. In fact, I'm going to invite you to turn quickly to the book of Hezekiah. It's not of Isaiah, actually, to the, the record of um, Hezekiah, chapter 38, which records an incredible sequence in the first five verses. There are a few Bibles, pass them down if people don't have them. But again, this just shows you a different kind of understanding of prayer. And can you really even buy this? Is this, is this just an Old Testament kind of thing? Isaiah chapter 38, starting at verse 1, reads this. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says, Hezekiah. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully. And with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. Before Isaiah even leaves the palace grounds here, folks, God apparently changes his mind, granting Hezekiah 15 more years of life. It's all over, especially in the Old Testament prophets. This is interesting. We don't have time to get into it. But in the book of Jeremiah, as if in ironic proof of the power of prayer, three times God commands Jeremiah to stop praying. 
He wanted no alteration in his plans for judgment on a rebellious nation. Think of Jonah, right? Forty more days, God promises, and Nineveh will be overturned. Jonah proclaims this to this heathen city. But according to Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. It did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. (laughs) Four times, in fact, the Old Testament reports that God relented or, or changed his mind in response to a request. And each time forestalled the promised punishment. God was merely following through on a principle, actually, that he spelled out to Jeremiah. He told him, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. What do you do with this? Since no human being, folks, can really comprehend the point of view of an infinite, timeless God interacting with material, time-bound people living on a time-bound planet. Any attempt to to reconcile this changeless God of the philosophers on the one hand with the response of God of the Bible on the other, it kind of falls short. Charles Finney was a revivalist who moved away from the strict Calvinism of his youth. He grounded his confidence in prayer actually in God's unchanging character. He said, if you ask why God ever answers prayer at all, the answer must be because he is unchangeable. For example, a God of true love and mercy, bound by his unchangeable character, must forgive a sinner who who prays in repentance. God changes course in response to his creature's change in course and does so in a manner consistent with the eternal qualities of goodness and mercy. Now, there's a contemporary theologian by the name of Clark Pinnock who follows a similar line of logic. Because God's nature is love, he says, God must be impressionable and sympathetic. He writes... Because God's love never changes, God's experience must change. Get it? Pinnock contrasts two models of God's sovereignty. Because you can picture God as this aloof monarch, kind of removed from the details of the world, just unchangeable and irresistible power. Or, on the other hand, you can picture God as a caring parent, an Abba, with qualities of love, generosity, and sensitivity. An infinite being who personally interacts with and responds to those he's created. And in that view, God considers prayers much as a wise parent might consider requests from a child. Andrew Murray, who himself a Calvinist, actually concluded that God does indeed allow himself to be decided by prayer to do what he otherwise would not have done. And he points to the Trinity for an understanding of how God might change his mind. The Trinity. Go ahead, uh, Kath. The the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have an inner kind of conversation going. You can go one click ahead. Kind of showing that God invites debate and counsel. Living in in community where there's dialogue and conversation going. We've seen how Jesus on earth actually relied on prayer. To commune with the Father and to make requests. Some of which notably were not granted. (laughs) Now Jesus, as our advocate, represents our interest within the Godhead. Within the family of God. The Apostle Paul actually implies that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has an even more personal, intimate role in prayer. In Romans 8.26, Paul writes, We do not know, often, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. In one of the few verses that mention all persons of the Trinity, Paul brings the three together. He says, for, for through him, Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
C.S. Lewis um, seemed fascinated, kind of. If, you, if you're, you're a big Lewis fan like I am, kind of a Lewis fanatic, he seemed fascinated by the questions posed by prayer, especially how a sovereign God listens to and responds to our prayers. Um, the famed Christian apologist explored the topic in several of his books and many of his essays and letters, and here's how he set the problem in a skeptic's voice. Lewis wrote, I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If, if he is all wise, as you say he is, doesn't he know already what is best? And if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? <laughs> Lewis replied that you could use the same argument against any human activity, though, not just prayer. Well, why wash your hands? If God intends them to be clean, they'll, they'll come clean without your washing them. Why ask for the salt? Why put on your boots? Why do anything? God could have arranged so that our bodies nourished themselves miraculously without food. Or knowledge entered our brains without studying or teachers. Umbrellas magically appeared to protect us from rainstorms. But apparently God chose a different style of governing the world. One which relies on human action or choice. The skeptic, then, is objecting not just to prayer, but the basic rules of creation. God made space and in the process granted the favored human species the dignity of what Pascal called the dignity of causation. In other words, God creates matter in such a way that we actually can manipulate it by cutting down trees to build houses, damming rivers to form reservoirs. He created and granted such an expanse of, of human freedom that we can actually oppress each other, rebel against our creator, even murder God's own son. Remember the passage in the gospel that that records how when Jesus walked the earth, he, quote, could not do any miracles in his hometown because of the residents' lack of faith. The narrative essentially highlights an example of God's power actually being disabled by unbelief. Lewis suggests that we might best imagine the world not as a state governed by a, a potentate, rather as a work of art, something like a play in the process of being created. And so the playwright allows his creatures to affect the play itself, then incorporates all their actions into the final result. Lewis explains, he says, For God forgives sins. He would not do so if we committed none. In that sense, the divine action is, is consequent upon, conditioned by, even elicited by our behavior. Follow it. So if God takes our sins into account, why not our prayers? Lewis sums up the drama of human history as one in which the scene and the general outline of the story is fixed by the author. But certain minor details are left for the actors to improvise. It may be a mystery why he should have allowed us to cause real events at all, but it's no odder that he should allow us to cause them by praying than by any other method. In other words, prayer is a designated instrument of God's power as real and as natural as the power of gravity or, or electromagnetic force. That God relies on prayer, if we can use such language, <laughs> to accomplish his work seems, in this view, no stranger than any other actions that God does. Think about it. Jesus commands what? Disciples, go into all nations and preach the gospel. <laughs> it kind of launches this missionary movement with its harrowing, dubious history through a ragtag band of 12. Wouldn't a long banner in the sky have served God's purpose as well? Jesus is alive. He's ascended. All men repent. Heal the sick. Visit the prisoners. Feed the hungry. House the strangers. Jesus also commanded these activities. But he delegates them into our hands. Rather than enlarging his own Galilean ministry to a global scale. 
over and over and over in the Bible, consistently, God seems to choose the course of action in which human beings can actually contribute most, in which the potential for abuse of freedom makes most perilous. Carol Barth, a 20th century theologian, theologian who pounded home the theme of God's sovereignty, saw no contradiction at all, actually, in a God who chooses to let prayers affect him. He is not deaf. He listens. More than that, he acts. He does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. That is what the word answer means. The fact that God yields to man petitions, changing his intentions in response to our prayers, is not a sign of weakness, Barth writes. He himself, in the glory of his majesty and power, has so willed it. Now, maybe like Philip Yancey, you envy those people who pray in simple faith without worrying about how prayer works and and how God governs this planet. I'd love to be like that. But maybe, at least if you're familiar with, like, you know, modern physics and cosmology, you realize that creatures bound by space and time can really never gain more than an inkling of the rule upholding the universe. Long ago, St. Augustine marveled kind of over the mystery of time, and I want you to think about this. Just track with me. You know I don't do a whole lot of science here. But I want you to think of time. The past... A past that has ceased to exist, a future that does not yet exist, and a current present that actually has no duration. (laughs) Physicist Stephen Hawking cites with approval Augustine's notion that any god must exist actually outside of time and space. We humans are confined to a space-time universe that began at a moment in time, but God is not so confined that way. So in talking about God, we really need a different kind of tense Less language. Something like, Jesus born (laughs) conveys reality more accurate than Jesus will be born or Jesus was born. Because from God's vantage point in eternity, the event in Bethlehem was perceived before the foundations of the world and its effects carry on forever. So it's like God's looking over this massive timeline that although, again, we're looking at our watches, we set them back, our calendar, God sees everything that has already happened. It's, it, it's happened in the future. It's happened in the past. What's happening right now. And he can access any of those at any time. So, on the one hand, we're time-bound creatures. But on the other, we have a timeless creator. He's not subject to the conventional restrictions of space and time. So, watch. How does God's timelessness affect prayer? This is interesting. C.S. Lewis decided it altogether reasonable to pray at noon for an event, take for instance like a doctor's appointment, that might have been decided at 10 a.m., as long as we do not know the final result before we pray. He writes, the event certainly has been decided. In a sense, it was decided before all worlds. But one of the things taken into account in deciding it, as God overlooks it, and therefore one of the things that really cause it to happen may be this very prayer that we are now offering. That bakes your potato. (laughs) Lewis adds that such a notion would be less shocking to some scientists than to popular thought. Take another example. Older models of physics kind of established a clear trail of cause and effect, right? You have one billiard ball, it strikes another, energy gets transferred, both balls kind of move along against a predictable, determined path. We all know that. But new models of, of physics deal with complexity theory, an information theory in an organized system such as like a single cell in the human body, much less an entire body, much less a community comprising many persons who all exercise free will. Gosh, simple rules of like cause and effect don't apply. 
Each level of consciousness, from, from matter to mind to many minds, introduces staggering new levels of complexity. And the idea is that we need a model that's far more sophisticated, and yes, actually mysterious, than anything Isaac Newton might have dreamed up to figure out why things happen. Scientists insist that measuring the the spin of one particle may affect the spin of another particle billions of miles away. Some even suggest, in a theory, maybe you've heard this, the, the butterfly effect. You ever hear the butterfly effect? That the flapping of a single insect's wings may contribute to the great causal chain that eventuates in a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico or a tornado in Texas. Who can say with confidence what caused any individual event in nature or in a human being? If a teenager decides to get drunk one weekend, what role did genes, brain chemistry, parental nurturing, and stubborn free will play in the, delu- in the decision? <laughs> Scientific journals actually reprise the old debates about Calvinistic you know, determinism, but this, this time with awareness of the odds against pinning down any one ultimate cause. So scientists and theologians alike can safely say that on one level the universe is very consistent, has consistent laws. The sun always appears first in the east, you know this. Low pressure systems bring storms. Species give birth to their own kind. The planets follow a dependable orbit. Because of its very predictability, the world allows us actually to manipulate it. We plant corn in Iowa, not in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) We store water in raised towers. Why? So that in our houses, the water will actually, in effect, run uphill. (laughs) We monitor fetal uh, health as the time for birth approaches. We design airplane wings and engines strong enough to lift the plane's weight skyward. Yet every one of those activities introduces the potential for error. Sometimes drought dries up reservoirs and parches corn even in Iowa. Sometimes, despite the best care, babies do die in childbirth. Sometimes planes crash for no easily discernible reason. What caused the hurricanes that ravaged New Orleans earlier this year? What role does God play in natural events like weather anomalies and birth defects? Does prayer ever influence those events? Why must people suffer natural calamities? Why are pain and pleasure distributed so randomly and unfairly? If you recall, when the Old Testament character Job posed his anguished personal version of such questions, God erupted with a science lesson of his own. Poor Job kind of repented in dust and ashes, shamed into silence by his ignorance in the face of God's own complexity theory. At various times, according to the biblical record, God did indeed play a very direct role in manipulating natural events, causing a drought or a plague of locusts, (laughs) reversing the course of disease and disability, even restoring life to a corpse. (laughs) But apart from these rare events that the Bible actually calls miracles... Unnatural occurrences. The Bible emphasizes an ongoing providence of God's will being done through the common course of ordinary, natural human activity. Rain falls, we plant seeds and they sprout. Farmers harvest. The strong care for the weak. The bountiful give to the needy. The the healthy ministering to the sick. So theologians tend to place the activity of God in a different category from natural or human activity. On the other hand, the Bible actually tends to draw them together. The main point? As Yancey writes, prayer especially brings together creator and creature, eternity and time, and all the fathomless mystery implied by that convergence. 
One can view prayer as a way of asking a timeless God to intervene more directly in our time-bound life on earth. And indeed, we do so all the time. You did this week. Praying for the sick, for the victims of tragedy, for the safety of our children or the persecuted church. One might also view prayer from the other direction as as a way of entering into the rhythms of eternity and aligning yourself with God's own point of view. A way to desire while on earth what God has willed for eternity. To harmonize our own purposes with the purposes of God. In other words, in prayer we ask for and gradually gain confidence in God's justice and his mercy and his holiness. Despite contemporary events that actually might call those traits into question. Through prayer, we immerse ourselves in the changeless qualities of God and then return to do our part in acting out those qualities on earth. This is the embodiment, actually, of the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Your will, Father, be done on time-bound earth as it is in timeless heaven. If you're like any average follower of Christ, maybe you oftentimes turn to prayer feeling just kind of besieged. You just watch CNN for an hour or two, right? I mean, the latest... News, as Erica did, as she talked about, you know, the kids in the Sudan for Operation Christmas Child. The latest news reminds us of poverty, injustice, human cruelty and terrorism, nuclear threats, a hundred other things that cause anxiety. An awareness of a creation disturbed kind of spirals inward as we think of family, friends and neighbors, so many of them battling illness, divorce, financial burdens, kids in trouble. And then to like our shame, petty interruptions in our own little lives kind of crowd out those concerns. Ah, my computer froze up. Ah, a hot water heater that doesn't work or broke. A to-do list that like never gets done. And so in prayer, you confess to God your sins and realize, ah, these are the same sins that I confessed yesterday and last week and the week before. Will nothing ever change? Will, Will I never change? If you go back to Matthew 6, Jesus actually instructs his followers, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And if you envision doing just that, entering a closet with your pressing time-bound burdens and asking God to renew, to refresh, to remind, to pour some eternity into you, to try to get your mind actually off yourself and and empty it, you might call to mind, you know, like Mother Teresa's nuns kneeling in their chapel long before daybreak, asking for the energy and the purity to go forth that day and help Calcutta's destitute towards a merciful death. Or, or you might think of hospice workers, army chaplains, so many of God's servants who daily face actually mountains before which our own concerns kind of shrink to molehills. Better yet, consider the image of Jesus himself in prayer facing the darkest day in human history, and pausing to pray, actually the longest prayer that's recorded in the Gospels, the prayer of John 17, to which I'd like us all to turn. John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus's. It is the longest recorded in Scripture, and it's an amazing prayer. I want to give you the backdrop for Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's an interesting image where you think of actually where people pray and how that comes to symbolize deeper realities about prayer. The backdrop for Jesus' prayer here is this image of Jesus who's actually huddled in a locked room with actually just a dozen friends. And one of them is a traitor. Outside temple guards, 
Roman legionnaires, they're buckling on their swords, whips, and torture devices. They're preparing for another dreary night's work. Somebody was praying for light. You see that? (laughs) And this picture of Jesus with the 12 disciples stands as a kind of tableau in human history. I want you to envision the striking scene in the upper room on the night of Jesus' betrayal. There's a hushed moment of calm. And then there's this heartfelt prayer, a quiet connection with eternity, while just outside, invisible forces mobilize in opposition. So read with me, John 17, starting at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Stop right there at verse 16. Capture this. Anticipating his departure, Jesus prays to the Father on behalf of his disciples. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Emphasizing the point, he repeats himself, doesn't he? He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of time-bound worldly reality, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of time-bound reality, even as I am not of it. In other words, Jesus, too, must have seen the group gathered around the table as as a tableau, a preview of the conflict that he was setting loose in the world. For 33 years, Jesus had stripped himself of the prerogatives of God, including omniscience, (laughs) 
in a timeless point of view that actually sees all history in a flash. He knew that at one time, in eternity. And yet, as a man, taking on flesh, the God-man, he admitted he did not know the time of final judgment and healing of the earth, though the Father did. In this prayer, however, Jesus enters into communion once again with his Father, recalling for a moment the stunning reality of his life in eternity before now surrendering himself one more time as a victim on this violent planet. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with what? The glory I had with you before the world began, reads verse 5. So you see Christ himself. He's reminiscing about life before planet Earth, eternity before time. And in this lengthy, luminous prayer, he gives the answer to the ultimate why questions. Why why creation, God? Why free will? Why human history and the onslaught of time? Answer? From the beginning, before the beginning, God willed to share with other creatures the love and fellowship, life and unity that was enjoyed in the Godhead before creation now and forever. Jesus culminates his prayer with a petition on our behalf in verses 20 through 24. Look at those real quick. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. It's amazing. In a few other places, the New Testament gives hints of God choosing us before the creation of the world. Paul claimed that God's grace was given to us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. With Jesus chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake, says Paul. Our eternal life was promised before the beginning of time. So, the essentials of theology, God's love... Election, grace, atonement, resurrection. The Bible specifically grounds outside of time and creation. Long before Einstein's theory of relativity of time and space, long before any notions of a Big Bang, origin of the universe, the New Testament writers said these truths are quite literally timeless. (laughs) Modern scientists tell us that our sun, actually, which is now they consider (laughs) middle-aged, will burn itself out in four or five billion years. Eventually, the universe itself may collapse. Yet in the words of the Creator, as His children, we have assurance that we will not only join Him, we will see His glory, but share in it for timeless eternity. In other words, the universe is not such a sad, lonely place after all. For God's love extends far beyond time. Of all the things Jesus said that night in the secret room in the Warrens of Jerusalem, one must have puzzled the disciples more than any. 
Flip back one chapter to John 16, verses 6 and 7 here. Jesus knew the melancholy effect of his words about impending death. And in verse 6, he tells his disciples, he says, Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. Then as if to cheer them up, he adds this. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Now those words, one has to admit, are pretty puzzling. I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I am going away. You can't help but think of all the ways God could have accomplished his will in the world. (laughs) By providing, you know, supplies of manna for every person to solve world hunger forever. (laughs) By eradicating each new strain of virus and bacteria before it mutates into the Asian bird flu. By, By closing in the margins of human freedom just a little bit to eliminate tyrants like Hitler and Saddam. Indeed, God sent his son, though, to live in a remote corner of the earth for just a few years. He delivered in person the message he wanted to convey, and then he left, claiming it to be somehow for our good. Why prayer? Of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, and easiest to ignore. So it is, unless Jesus was right in this most baffling claim. He went away for our sakes as a form of actually power sharing to invite us into direct communion with our Father and into the struggle against the forces of evil. Why pray? Richard Foster gives the simple, straightforward answer that God likes to be asked. God certainly does not need our wisdom or our knowledge nor even the information contained in our prayers. Remember, your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's not about informing him of what's going on. But the Apostle John tells us that God is what? Love. God does not merely have love, or he doesn't merely feel love. God is love. Therefore, he cannot not love. As such, God desires relationship with the creatures made in his image. Soren Kierkegaard said that God's will is the possible makes me able to pray. If there is nothing but necessity, man is essentially as inarticulate as all other animals. (laughs) But unlike the animals, we are not inarticulate. We can pray. We are children, and our Father in heaven is listening. More than that, he apparently enjoys when we ask. Paul counsels believers, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The King James Version speaks of actually making known our requests. How can, how can we make known a request to a God, again, who already knows? <laughs> Relationship is the key. If you're like an average American, you get all sorts of requests in the mail from strangers, Right? Someone in a foreign country or with a special need kind of just appealing for help. Most of the time, my wife and I tend not to get involved. (laughs) More out of a fear kind of encouraging an avalanche of similar requests. But when your neighbor has a need, though, or your nephew, or someone known to you, known to you, what do you do? You do everything you can to meet the need, don't you? Relationship just kind of ups the urgency of any information that's conveyed. It's the difference between watching news about a tragedy overseas 
and watching the news when your son or your daughter is stationed there. As C.S. Lewis reminds us, confessing sins before God tells God something God already knows better than we do. Yet somehow, the act of confession and forgiveness binds our relationship and allows the communion to exist that otherwise could not take place. The same intimacy happens when, think of it in, in, in earthly terms, when a husband apologizes to his wife for something that they actually both know about. So he doesn't apologize by like, bringing new information, but he brings his heart to her, his humbled self. By using prayer rather than other more direct means, God once again chooses the most freedom-enhancing style of acting in the world. God waits to be asked. In some mysterious way, making his activity on earth contingent on us. Does the kingdom of God advance slower because of that choice? (laughs) Lewis writes, For he seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. He allows us to neglect what he would have us do or to fail. Perhaps we do not fully realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite free wills to coexist with omnipotence. It seems to involve at every moment almost a sort of divine abdication. Lewis adds in another book, creation seems to be delegation through and through. He will do nothing simply of himself, which can be done by creatures. I suppose this is because, at his heart, he is a giver. Does the kingdom of God advance slower because God's activity on earth is contingent on our prayers? Yeah. In the same way that parents slow their pace when the youngest child is just learning to walk. Their mission is to equip and nurture and love and grow someone else, not themselves. It is for your good that I am going away, Jesus insisted to his followers. The real question facing us is, do we believe him? Let's stand and pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I want to thank you so much, Father. I want to thank you first for the words of Philip Yancey and the incredible insight that you have invited us into a relationship with yourself through the privilege of prayer. The creator inviting the creatures into conversation, into partnership and cooperation in changing the world, Lord God. You could do it. We know it, Lord, because of your power and your authority. Make all things new. Heal every disease. But instead, you choose us to be agents of reconciliation, the strong caring for the weak, the rich sharing with the poor. Your kingdom come. 
on this earth. Come more in your fullness now through us, Lord God. Would you fan in our hearts a flame to persevere and pray in prayer with you, Lord? Where maybe our prayer lives have grown dull or weak, we realize there's actually much riding on it and that you love to be asked. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, the Son, for your sacrifice. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes his home in us.